Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today's episode is a Christmas teaching in which I write a letter to my daughter, and it is entitled, Dear Maya. On the last episode of the Paradox Podcast, I told you that every year I write letters to my kids for my Christmas teachings because their birthdays are so close to Christmas Day. Now, while these letters are written today, they are meant to be read by my kids at a later date as I attempt to describe to them what I have seen in the past year from them and how it resembles the Christmas story. Last week, I wrote a letter to my son, and this week is a letter to my daughter, Maya, and the letter reads this way. Dear Maya, six years ago this past Tuesday at 4.01 in the morning on Christmas Eve, you burst into the world. Your mother's life changed, my life changed, and Christmas Eve instantly became synonymous for us with birthday candles and paper princess plates. Happy birthday, Maya. I love, love, love being your dad. In six years, you grew from a fragile infant into a strong, fierce, and independent human being who embodies all of what the phrase girl power is supposed to mean. During this past year, your sixth year of life, you took ballet lessons and performed in your first dance recital. You challenged yourself to become a better skier and skied down chairs one, two, and six at Mammoth Mountain for the first time. You started kindergarten, you became more honest with your dad or more annoyed with me, I can't really decide. You dressed up as Princess Jasmine for Halloween. You watched as your brother copied everything you did. And when your mother and I informed you that we were signing you up for piano lessons, you outright rebelled and said, no daddy, I don't want piano lessons. I wanna take drum lessons. What a beautiful year, Maya. Every year with you is better than the last. And this year was filled with so many happy memories and celebrations, including three fantastic weddings that we went to together. All three of our 2019 weddings marked important firsts for our family. Back in June, we went to David and Liz's wedding in the Napa Valley. And for the first time ever, you and your brother walked down the aisle before the bride as the flower girl and the Bible boy. Then in October, we went to Maddie and Jordan's wedding near Jinx Lake. For the first time ever, we attended a wedding where your matchmaking mother set up the bride and groom on their first date. In the guest book, your mother only wrote two words to Maddie and Jordan, you're welcome. Most recently, we celebrated Kanda and Ricky's wedding together in November. And for the first time ever, you and I took part in a same-sex wedding. I was 36 and you were only five. But there we were, experiencing something new together. On that day, the sun shone perfectly as it only can in Southern California in November. We all beamed as Candace's parents walked her down the aisle, and then we smiled as Ricky's parents walked her down the aisle. I had the honor of officiating this wedding, and we all laughed, and we even shed a few tears as we heard the story of how Ricky and Kanda fell in love. They exchanged vows, they exchanged rings, they exchanged the opportunity to wash each other's feet. We prayed over their new union and I pronounced Kanda and Ricky wife and wife. Everyone cheered 
and I invited Canda and Ricky to kiss for the very first time as a married couple. Canda and Ricky kissed, and Maya, you immediately turned to your mother and said, um, okay, weird. I must confess, I find your reaction here to be fascinating. The rest of this letter is dedicated to talking to you about your honest, unfiltered reaction to Kanda and Ricky's kiss. This moment leads us to an important discussion in how we interact with, fully appreciate, and learn to love the beautiful diversity of all people who are made in the image of God. And this discussion begins with the Christmas story. On one seemingly random evening 2,000 years ago, a group of shepherds watched over their sheep. They went to work that evening, assuming that this evening would be an evening like all the other evenings. They clocked in, and the shepherds began to mind their own business. Until, that is, their business became deeply disturbed. Within an instant, the darkness of night became a brilliant, blinding light shining all around them. The source of this prodigious illumination originated from a supernatural being, the angel of the Lord, who now hovered before the shepherds. Most English translations of St. Luke's story tell us that the shepherds understandably felt a frightening amount of terror toward this supernatural apparition. But the original Greek of St. Luke's words are an idiom, and St. Luke communicates with us that the shepherds, quotes, feared a great fear. Amid the screams of terror from the shepherd, which probably included someone yelling out, what is happening, or is this real life, or holy sheep excrement, the angel of the Lord said in a thunderous tone, do not be afraid, for see, I am bringing you good news of great joy for all the people. To you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a child wrapped in bands of cloth and lying in a manger. And then the angel of the Lord pulled out all of the stops. The sky became saturated with an intimidating legion of vocal angels singing in perfect unison, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace among those whom God favors. Now, I have heard pastors compare this angelic chorus to a church choir singing at full volume. But the largest church choir I have ever heard wasn't more than 100 people. We're talking about an uncountable swarm of angels that filled the sky. So what I imagine these angels sounded like is much less church choir and much more what I heard at Coachella in 2007. During that year, Rage Against the Machine came back after a seven-year hiatus and they led a mass of over 100,000 people to scream at the top of their lungs in unison, all hell can't stop us now. That's the number of angels that Luke described here. So this mob of angels sang so loud that it hurt the shepherd's ears all while a dazzling light show overwhelmed their retinas, and at the same time, this plethora of flying creatures were fully engaged in a celestial performance art. In other words, the shepherds are experiencing the limits of what a human being can perceive through our senses, and it's cranked up to 11. And then, at the peak of this bombardment, all of it suddenly disappeared, and it became dark. 
and quiet and palpably lonely. We can imagine that all kinds of doubt creeped into the silent aftermath for the shepherds. They probably thought to themselves, did I really just see that? Am I going crazy? I mean, if that was real, why did the angels choose us to announce the birth of the Messiah? Why are we so special? Will anyone believe me if I tell them what I saw? Now, Maya, I know several Christians who read this story and believe every word of it. What's interesting is that this ardent belief that they hold often fills them with an envious sense of longing. Christians today think to themselves, man, if just once during my lifetime, I could see a multitude of angels singing at full volume, then I would be able to possess an unshakable faith. But there are others who read this story and they have a hard time believing any word of it. They think to themselves, really, Luke? You want me to believe that angels filled the sky and sang to some shepherds? Why is it that these angelic appearances seem to decline rapidly after the introduction of the scientific method? If I have to believe that angels spoke to shepherds to be part of Christianity, then I am uninterested in suspending belief in order to belong. You see, Maya, so often we become obsessed with whether or not the supernatural moments in the Bible literally and historically occurred that we miss the point that the author is trying to make. I think that all of us, atheists, Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, Jews, everyone, can identify with the feeling that occurs when we expect life to go one way and then all of a sudden there is new information new experiences, and new stories that we encounter that change everything. These shepherds held an assumption that this night would be like all the other nights. And then there was a disruption when angels appeared, played all the hit songs, and then quickly disappeared. And in the wake of this mind-boggling event, I imagine the shepherds turned to each other and said, um, okay, weird. These are the words of someone who experiences a disruption of their assumptions. And the very birth of the baby born on Christmas Day challenged the status quo, and then it fully developed into a pattern that pervaded all of this baby's life. Maya, during the life of Jesus, there was an assumption that the Son of God would be born in Bethlehem to a prominent Jewish family in a birthing room fit for a king, surrounded by an expert medical team with a fully stocked nursery ready to welcome him. And then there was a disruption when the Son of God was born to peasants from Nazareth, and these peasants placed him in a feeding trough. If we were there, Maya, I believe that we both would have seen the Messiah lying in a manger and said, um, okay, weird. There was an assumption that the Samaritan people's mixed heritage and tragic history led them to an inferior way of life and a lack of knowledge about the true God. 
And then there was a disruption. When Jesus told a parable about how a Samaritan, without any theological training or religious position, generously cared for someone in their hour of need and thus embodied a greater understanding of God than the highest ranking religious officials in the temple. If we were there, Maya, I believe we both would have heard this story and said, um, okay, weird. There was an assumption that the Son of God would keep all of the biblical rules, especially the Ten Commandments. And then there was a disruption when Jesus healed a man suffering from terrible edema on the Sabbath. This is a clear violation of the fourth commandment. And if we were there, Maya, I believe both of us would have seen this healing that broke the fourth commandment and said, um, okay, weird. There was an assumption that God hated sinners and could not wait to dispose of their reprehensible human bodies. And then there was a disruption when Jesus Christ told a story about a prodigal son and how the father of this son did not hate his son, but instead this father waited at the door for him to return. And this father ran to him to welcome him back into the family. And this father threw a grand banquet in his son's honor to express the joy he felt upon this son's return. If we were there, Maya, I believe that we both would have heard this story and said, um, okay, weird. There was an assumption that the son of God would not be cursed by God. This one seems rather obvious, doesn't it? And then there was a disruption when Jesus died on a cross. This was a disruption because the book of Deuteronomy very plainly states, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. His early followers proclaimed that the Son of God was crucified on the trunk of a tree. If we were there, Maya, and we would have heard these early church leaders' testimony, I believe we both would have said, um, okay, weird. These words, um, okay, weird, are the words of someone who experiences a disruption of their assumptions. They expected things to go this way, but something derailed those expectations and caused everything to go that way. Now we must acknowledge that Jesus did not cause these disruptions for the sake of chaos. Rather, his disruptions served a higher purpose, to invite people to stop blindly accepting the assumptions of their family, their religion, and their nation, and instead to start trusting their own personal experience. In other words, Jesus wanted people to move from a closed to an open posture toward life. Openness to each other, openness to life, and openness to God is at the heart of the Christian message. To illustrate this idea, let's look at our story of angels and shepherds. The angels appeared, they announced the birth of the Son of God, and then they disappeared. After the shepherds, recovered from the utter weirdness of that present moment, 
Luke tells us that the shepherds chose an open posture toward life when they said, let us go now to Bethlehem and see this thing that has taken place, which the Lord has made known to us. Now, Maya, it's important to note that the shepherds do not take the angel's word for it. Rather, they decide that they need to go to Bethlehem and see this baby for themselves. This is healthy skepticism. This is curious wonder. This is where the action is. This is a life of openness, and this is exactly what the angels wanted. They wanted to inspire people to go and see for themselves. The angels' announcement is a disruption, but this disruption quickly morphs into an invitation. It's almost as if the angels say, Jesus is born, but don't take our word for it. Go and see him for yourself. This pattern of an invitation following a disruption is what defines the life of Jesus. When Mary gently placed the Son of God in a trough and not a royal crib, the baby invited people to be open to the idea that God lives in solidarity with the poor and the powerless. When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, he invited people to be open to the idea that they were part of the problem that they held on to dangerous prejudices against this minority. He then challenged them to discard these prejudices and start seeing the Samaritans not as equals, but as spiritual teachers. When Jesus broke the fourth commandment and healed a man on the Sabbath, he invited people to be open to the idea that religious rules take a back seat when your brother or sister is in need. When Jesus told the story of the prodigal son, he invited people to be open to the idea that God doesn't hate human beings. Rather, God loves human beings and sin cannot separate us from the love of God. When Jesus died on the cross, a surefire religious sign of God's curse, he invited people to be open to the idea that the presence of God is eternally found among those that religion has cast out, and God is found among those that religion has declared to be cursed. Jesus did not condemn people for holding assumptions society handed them, but Jesus did consistently point out the problems with those assumptions, and then Jesus invited them into something greater, a life of openness. A life of openness is the ability to look honestly at our assumptions, to question why we believe these assumptions, and then to discard those assumptions that are incongruent with our experience, and to take ownership of the assumptions that we find to be valuable to ourselves. So Maya, when you attended a wedding in Southern California in 2019, and I pronounced a couple wife and wife instead of husband and wife, you said, um, okay, weird. You said these words because this wedding, this couple, this kiss disrupted your assumptions of what you understood marriage to be, which raises the important question. Where did you get the assumption that marriage should take place only between a man and a woman. 
I can think of two sources where this assumption originated from. The first source is the weddings you attended before this one. By my count, Kanda and Ricky's wedding was the 12th wedding you attended because this is the life of a pastor's kid. Now, this is a lot of weddings for a five-year-old. And for 11 weddings in a row, you saw a groom become married to a bride. So when the 12th wedding rolled around and there was not one but two brides, your brain perceived all of this and thought, wow, this wedding is different. The second source of this assumption can be found in all of the Disney movies that we watch together. These stories tell us that Shang and Mulan belong together. Anna and Kristoff belong together. Naveen and Tiana belong together. Belle and the human formerly known as Beast belong together. While someone could dismiss this as a source of your assumption and say that I am placing too much emphasis on Disney, these movies represent a larger social conditioning that informs your assumptions. Because the fact is that Disney, even in 2019, is not willing to take a financial risk and tell a children's story about a queer romantic couple. Imagine how different Kanda and Ricky's wedding might have been for you if Elsa fell romantically in love with another woman during Frozen. Or if Mulan told Shang that she actually felt more like herself when she wore men's clothes. Or what if Prince Eric, while all the animals are begging him to kiss the girl, simply said, you're a nice girl, Ariel, but I'm gay. The majority of our society and large American multimedia companies do not believe that children should be exposed to queer romantic stories. This social conditioning is what led you to react to Kanda and Ricky's kiss on that day. We went to a wedding, two brides kissed, and you said, um, okay, weird. Maya, I want you to know that I understand this reaction. Because if my parents took me to a same-sex wedding when I was five, I can almost guarantee that I would have had the same reaction. I even find your words to be strangely endearing. Mainly because when I hear your words, I think of my own journey. And I am filled with empathy. I too have experienced a disruption of my assumptions for what I thought marriage was supposed to be. What I learned to do in recent years, and what I hope you can do far sooner than I could, is to trust the Christmas story and the entire life of Jesus. Because when I experience a disruption now, I learned to ask, what is the invitation to openness here? This is a question that I know well. Because at the age of 18, I believed with great certainty that, quotes, all homosexuals are beyond the grace of God and none of them will be in heaven, close quotes. At the age of 21, I spent my first year on a public school campus. And I remember walking by an LGBT club at the school's fair. I looked at these people sitting behind the table and I felt a great amount of fear. 
I think I felt fear because they were so comfortable with their sexuality and their comfort made me realize how uncomfortable I was with my own. At the age of 24, I voted against same-sex marriage in California's statewide election on Proposition 8. I did this because I was a new pastoral intern, and I had this sense that traditional marriage was under attack. In my mind, the church needed to rally together as a counter-cultural institution. At the age of 26, I took my first full-time paycheck from an institution that openly discriminated against queer people. If I pretended that these moments did not exist, then this erasure causes a great deal of harm because it claims that these prejudices never existed. Maya, I am not proud of these homophobic opinions, prejudices, and actions in my history but they are part of my story. I am sorry to the queer community for how quickly I judged, for the pain that I caused, and for how long I blindly accepted the assumptions of my religion. But filed in between those moments of prejudice are moments of disruption. At the age of 17, I lived with the assumption that being gay resulted from one's refusal to control their sexual desires. Therefore, the Christianity I grew up with told me, taught me, that gay people were only interested in rampant promiscuity. And then there was a disruption. When my aunt's brother and his boyfriend and fiancé walked down the aisle in the year 2001 and made lifelong vows of fidelity to each other. Gay marriage was not recognized in the state of California at this time, but they wanted to pledge their lives to each other simply because they were in love. Which raised the question, why did the church tell me that gay men are only interested in promiscuity when Tom and George are clearly in love? But rather than seeing this disruption as an invitation to openness, I closed myself off to that question. At the age of 23, I lived with the assumption that if someone was gay, they could just live their gay lifestyle and we didn't need to interact with each other. And then there was a disruption when I saw the film Brokeback Mountain. In this movie, the main characters both settle for lives they do not want because they did not fit into society's definition of true romantic love. Which raised the question, why isn't American society more kind, more empathetic, and more accommodating to queer people? But rather than seeing this disruption as an invitation to openness, I closed myself off to that question. At the age of 25, I lived with the assumption that traditional marriage needed to be protected, and I voted against same-sex marriage in 2008. And then there was a disruption a friend of mine got really mad with me after I told him how I voted. He asked me, why would you do that, Craig? What do you have against gay marriage? I began to tell my friend, well, the Bible says, and he cut me off. What? What does the Bible actually say? And I didn't know. Which raised the question, does the Bible actually condemn same-sex marriage? 
And this time, rather than choosing to close myself off to that question, I accepted the invitation to openness. I dove headlong into the Bible. I read all of the texts that deal with same-sex sexual activity. I did word studies in Greek and Hebrew. I read books about the culture and historical context surrounding all of the texts that describe these actions. I read articles and books by queer Christians commenting on the Bible. This study lasted for four years and still continues in some form to this day. And you know what I found, Maya? I found that the Bible does not condemn same-sex marriage in any way, shape, or form. The strongest testimony of Scripture is that people of all gender identities and sexual orientations are fearfully and wonderfully made in the image of God. And the four Gospels lead me to fully believe that if Jesus walked among us today as an ordained minister at a church, that he would dedicate children of queer couples, that he would baptize transgender men, transgender women, and our non-binary friends, that he would officiate and bless same-sex marriages, and that he, with his congregations, would ordain queer pastors. All of these ideas are not assumptions that were handed to me. Rather, they are ideas that I arrived at when I went and saw what the Bible had to say for myself. For too long, I ignored the invitations to openness and chose to blindly follow what was comfortable. My goal in writing this letter to you, Maya, is not for you to blindly accept the conclusions that I have come to. Rather, my desire is for you to live a life that consistently accepts the invitation to openness, for you to engage in the discussion, for you to think critically about what you believe, for you to ask thoughtful questions, and for you to enjoy the journey where those questions lead you. This is what Jesus yearned for with the people he encountered. Which brings me back to one last story about you that took place earlier this year. All the way back in March, you went on a special birthday trip with Nana and Pops to Spokane. When we put you on a plane, you could not read books. Two and a half days later, you came back and said, Daddy, I want to read this princess book to you. I thought this was cute. I assumed you were going to open a book and describe to me what was happening in the pictures and call that, quotes, reading. But I experienced a disruption. You read all of the words on the page verbatim. It's almost like you learned to read overnight. Now, since that day in March, you have become obsessed with reading. You love to read everything and anything, books for kids, books for adults, street signs, movie posters, and so much more. The past nine months, you stuck your nose in a wide variety of books and allowed your imagination to be captivated by the worlds created by words on a page. As your father, I am elated that you love to read, and I want to do everything I can to help foster your passion for literature. But here at the start, I want to tell you that there is a misconception about the value of reading in our society. Many people believe that the best readers are the ones who can remember the most intimate details of the literature they consume. 
They are impressed by a human being's ability to memorize things. To give you an idea of this, if you could memorize the book of Philippians in the Bible and recite it without notes in front of a church, that church would probably give you a standing ovation. However, there is a big difference between memorizing Philippians and understanding what Paul, the author of Philippians, is attempting to say. For me, the difference between memorization and reading comprehensions is a similar difference between a closed life and a life of openness. The point of reading is not for you to memorize what another author wrote. No. The point of reading is that you may consider this thing called life from another person's perspective, to empathize with the author, to see things from outside of your own senses, to be open to what they are saying, to engage in the discussion, and to think critically about what you believe and why you believe it. From there, you can determine what you can change about yourself in order to live with more empathy and love. The books that matter are the books that invite us to openness. And that is why we read. And so Maya, may this next year, your seventh year of life, be filled with wonder and curiosity. May you read a plethora of books that push you toward greater empathy. May you fully trust the Christmas story and smile whenever ordinary nights take an unexpected turn. May you have the courage to search for the invitation to openness that lies in the heart of every disruption we encounter. And may you, Maya, my daughter, my love, and my joy, accept this invitation to openness. I am so proud of you, Maya, and I love the woman you have been, the woman you are, and the woman you are becoming. With love. <laughs>